before we get started, I wanted to let you all know that we only have today's episode and next week's episode, and then we will be taking a break from the Book Insights podcast for the month of December. So, uh, but stay warm because we will be back in January. So that'll give you plenty of time to catch up on our uh, previous episodes. But uh, yeah, don't expect new ones from us in December while we take a little hibernation break. You're listening to Book Insights, brought to you by Memoed. Finding and simplifying the world's most powerful ideas to fit into your lifestyle. Each episode is a deep dive into a nonfiction bestseller that can change your life or make you think. In around 30 minutes, you'll learn all about a book that offers wisdom for your life, career, or business. So get ready to live and work smarter, better, and happier with Book Insights. Stephen King was nearly killed on June 19, 1999. He'd taken up four-mile walks in the afternoon around Lowell, Maine. One mile ran along a main road, Route 5. There's a bad spot on Route 5 where you can't see what's coming around the bend. On that summer day, Brian Edwin Smith drove his pale blue Dodge van on Route 5. Smith had a record for being a lousy driver. He had two Rottweilers named Bullet and Pistol. That day, Bullet was trying to get at some meat in a cooler. Smith turned around in his seat to push the dog's face away. His van swerved all over the road. Around 4.30 p.m., Smith thought he hit a small deer. When he stopped his van, he noticed bloody spectacles sitting next to him on the seat. According to the police report, the force sent King 14 feet through the air, where he collapsed into a ditch on the side of the road. If he went a little farther, he would have struck the rocks and never opened his eyes again. But King did wake up. He woke up in the ditch, hurt beyond his understanding. Watching over him was the man who drove the van. Smith sat on a rock with a cane across his lap. His dog, Bullet, waited with him. His attitude was strangely relaxed. Disappointed, but not frantic. Perhaps even jovial. King pointed at his leg and asked if it's dislocated. Smith said, nah, it's broken in five, maybe six places. He shook his head, weirdly detached, as if giving some bad luck on the news. And aw shucks. Before passing out from the pain, King thought to himself, Great, I've been killed by a character from one of my own books. Stephen King might single-handedly be responsible for making horror a hit literary sensation. Horror was always popular, but it never sold like Stephen King sells horror. Telepathic, tortured children on the run, pursued by evil government agents who want to harness that power, that's King. A leading romance writer is kidnapped by a psychopathic fan with a pig named Misery. That's definitely King. And when a town is infected with an unknowable cosmic shapeshifter that enjoys maiming children as a clown, that's a King epic. He's been a best-selling sensation since his first novel, Carrie, back in 1974. His 50-plus books have sold over 350 million copies. People wanted to know his secret, but it took him almost 30 years to write about the actual craft of storytelling. He teased the idea with 1981's Dance Macabre, the nonfiction book focused on horror, horror in literature, film, and black-and-white TV serials. But Dance Macabre barely scratched the surface on the art of writing. When he set out to explain the who, what, where, and why of his art, King knew he needed to give context. On writing, a memoir of the craft 
is structured as half-memoir, half-writing guide. And while some of his books can be upwards of 800 pages, this one's brisk by comparison. The book has another odd distinction. King began writing the book in 1997, but then set it aside. He didn't pick it up until June 1999, shortly before Brian Smith's van struck him on Route 5. It was finally published in 2000. The event changed him and the way he wrote. On writing exists in that painful transition between the writer he was and the writer he became. For this book insight, we'll first cover King's formative years and the women who saved his life. Second, we'll examine how King defines writing and what writing means to him. Third, we'll take apart King's toolbox in which he describes the essential tools all writers should have. Finally, we'll explore the day King almost died and how it changed his life. We'll end by looking at his legacy and life since publishing on writing. We'll also touch on some criticisms of King following his near-death experience. Let's start by looking at the women in his life. If you asked King how he writes, he can't give a clear answer. In playful fashion, he gives a rundown of his life's journey in order to explain how he does what he does. He tells of finding his father's old H.P. Lovecraft books in the attic. A paperback of the lurking fear and other stories drew him into the world of horror and dread. His father was a merchant seaman and unsuccessful writer. He abandoned the family when Stephen was only two years old. Here's King in an interview with George R.R. R. Martin at the Kiva Auditorium discussing his father. No, my father didn't encourage me to do anything because he split uh, when I was two. Uh, my brother David was four. He said he was going out for cigarettes, and it must have been a rare brand because he's still looking so far as I know. <laughs> the rest King owes to the women in his life. First, there's Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King, his mother. He calls her one of America's early liberated women, but not by choice. Society shunned Nellie Ruth as a single working woman who couldn't raise her children on her own. But she kept her kids relatively healthy and happy. Nellie introduced an idea into King's head. Stevie showed his mother hand-drawn comics. He had copied them from his issues of Combat Casey. She said the magical words, I bet you could do better. Write one of your own. He did. Stephen wrote a story of animals driving around the neighborhood, helping children out. Nellie read it, laughed at all the jokes, and paid him a quarter for it. He wrote several more at a quarter apiece. Thanks to his mom, King made his first buck. This was a revelation. He could actually create the kind of stories he was reading. Without this, he wouldn't have had the guts to write in his brother's do-it-yourself zine, The Rag, nor create the offensive articles in a self-published school rag, The Village Vomit. That one got King into a ton of trouble, coming close to getting expelled. Its tagline read, All the shit that will stick. But the kids loved it. King discovered that people love crudeness and shocking humor. Later in life, another hard-working, low-income mother would come to his rescue. King married Tabitha Spruce within two years of meeting her in college. She was a gifted poet who impressed him with her depth of knowledge. They went on to have three children, Owen, Joe, and Naomi. He calls her Tabby. Tabby worked at Dunkin' Donuts, and the couple were so hard up on cash that she attempted selling dirty confessional stories to men's magazines. Stephen took up a day job teaching English composition. At night, he wrote stories for men's magazines like Cavalier, Jugs, and Dude. They lived in a double-wide trailer with no phone line. 
One day, Tabby pulled a discarded story from the trash. In it, girls in a high school shower throw sanitary napkins at another girl who's menstruating. The girl doesn't understand what's happening to her body and is terrified of the horror inside and out. Stephen didn't like it. He struggled with the female characters and couldn't empathize with the protagonist, Carrie White. But Tabby didn't let him throw it away. She spoke the magical words, You got something here. I really think you do. She convinced her husband to finish it, helping with the female perspective. King notes the old saying that all novels are actually long letters written to a single person. For Stephen, that's Tabitha. She's Stephen's first reader and primary counselor. As a novelist, she understands story and character. As a poet, she understands language. She'll point out unnecessary plot digressions and laugh at the funny bits, just as Nellie Ruth once did. Stephen titled the manuscript Carrie. Doubleday bought it for a $2,500 advance, which came in very handy. He was now officially a novelist, and the family got a working phone line. Sometime later, King got a call from the publisher. They'd sold the paperback rights for $400,000. It was an astonishing sum. In the same year, Mario Puzzo had sold the paperback rights to The Godfather for the same amount. King's mother lived long enough to hear her sister read an early print of Carrie at her deathbed. She succumbed to uterine cancer in 1974. King penned The Shining in the following year. Much of the 1980s were spent churning out bestseller after bestseller, writing under a substance-induced daze. King wasn't just addicted to alcohol. He had a problem with addiction. He took just about anything he could get his hands on. He published a novel in 1981 about a rabid dog named Cujo stalking a mother and child in a dead car. King has no memory of writing that book. It wasn't just denial that kept King from confronting his own addictions. Fear kept him on the leash as well. He feared losing his gift. His writing regimen was extensive and rigid. And he wrote fast, at least 2,000 words a day, every day. At his fastest, he completed the first draft of 1982's The Running Man in a single week. If drugs pushed him to these creative heights, he didn't want to lose that. He recognized the long lineage of male writers who relied on alcohol or other substances, from Edgar Allan Poe through Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. An author must open up to create their art. For 20th century men, you didn't open up and pour your heart out. Culture pushed the image of the strong, silent male hero, Men don't emote. They drink. They make a show of how resilient and closed off they are. King saw it in the male authors he looked up to, and he saw it in himself. At the time, he didn't see the problem, but Tabitha didn't want their children to see their father die in front of them. She threw an intervention after Cujo came out. He was stubborn. He still believed his habits weren't a problem. Sure, he drank and had help from a few other substances, but he had it under control. Tabitha threw an intervention. She went up to his office and returned with his trash bin. She overturned it over the rug. Crushed beer cans, grams of cocaine, Xanax bottles, Valium packets, empty cough syrup bottles, cigarette and marijuana butts scattered over the floor. King had no more excuses. He sought help. By the end of the 80s, he quit all drinking and drugs. Tabitha dragged him kicking and screaming through the door of recovery, and all his fears proved to be unfounded. The writing was there waiting for him on the other side. There was life beyond the drink and the drugs. 
As long as he lived, writing would be there for him. Tabitha would be there too. It wouldn't be the last time both saved his life. Let's pause for now. When we come back, we'll return to Stephen King's On Writing. We'll discover King's answer to the question, what is writing? Then we'll explore the secrets to King's toolbox. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodapp.com insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights. We're continuing our look into Stephen King's book on the art of storytelling and writing. It's titled On Writing, a memoir on the craft. Here's a Game of Thrones author, George R.R. R. Martin, asking King the big question. Yes, there is something I want to ask you. How the fuck do you write so many books so fast? (laughs) When I'm working, I work every day, uh, three, four hours, and I try to get those six pages, and I try to get them fairly clean. We'll first get into King's secret truth of writing. Then we'll dig into the craft by examining the tools in King's toolbox. What is writing? Joyce Carol Oates sees it as a means to transcend the physical world and communicate with something greater. For Don Winslow, it's an obsession, an addiction. Stephen King has his own answer, and naturally, it's so very him. Writing is telepathy. You might roll your eyes at that. Of course, the guy who wrote Firestarter and The Shining thinks writing is a supernatural gift. But King demonstrates this with an example. There's a white rabbit with a blue number eight on its back. It sits in a cage the size of a small aquarium, on a table with a red tablecloth. Each of us has our own particular image of the white rabbit. We have our own cage, our own red tablecloth. Some of us have a stylized aid on that rabbit's back. Or we have the blue ink as a bright pastel, or maybe a dark navy. But no matter how different the details are, we've got the image. King might not be completely serious when he labels this as telepathy. Maybe he doesn't mean it literally. But he makes a point. With writing, you can send a message or an image through space and time. Often this won't be exact. The measurements of the small aquarium-sized cage won't always match when we compare. But something is being shared. King, writing at his desk in Maine in the late 90s, put an image into our minds. He's transmitted that rabbit into our brains. The book's subtitle states that writing is a craft, and it's not terribly dissimilar from carpentry. King's grandpa and his uncle Oren were carpenters. Oren had a massive handmade toolbox, with three levels and lots of little drawers. Whenever there was a job, Uncle Oren brought the entire toolbox, even if he only needed a tiny screwdriver. He told four-year-old Stephen, It's best to have your tools with you. If you don't, you're apt to find something you didn't expect and get discouraged. For King, it's an analogy to writing. To create anything, you need a set of tools and know how to use them. With writing, those tools are vocabulary, grammar, style, and the paragraph. King suggests vocabulary and grammar go into the top shelf of your writer's toolbox. It's not the complexity of either that matters, but the ability to use them in a way such that the reader doesn't even notice their presence. Don't use cliches, 
and don't dress up your language for literary effect. Write short sentences that contain a noun and a verb, and avoid adverbs like the plague. King attended some creative writing classes when he was young, but he found them self-indulgent. The basic recipe for becoming a writer is the same as it always was, he says. Read a lot and write a lot. The more you read, the greater the number of references you'll have in your mind for what works and what doesn't. The more you write, while getting public feedback, the better you'll get at understanding what moves people. Simple rules, but if you follow them, it's hard to go wrong. Too many fledgling authors believe they can achieve great art or commercial success without learning the basics. What they discover down the way is that no one will take them seriously if they prove they don't know the essential tools of writing or can't be disciplined enough to create and revise a body of work. According to King, the paragraph, not the sentence, is the writer's building block. If you write paragraph by paragraph rather than sentence by sentence, you'll create a natural flow. You can eventually build a cabin or a house or maybe even a mansion. Great literary houses are built paragraph by paragraph. That's how you get an Of Mice and Men or a Wuthering Heights. Beyond composition advice, King describes his dogmatic beliefs in the creation of story. These are some of King's most jarring revelations about his process. It's a shock to anyone who's wondered where King gets these bizarre and terrifying ideas. King believes the story writes itself. He compares the story to a fossil buried in the earth. It's the writer's job to extract as much of the fossil as possible without losing bits and pieces. Your toolbox's organization helps select the best tool for the job. When excavating, sometimes you need a hammer, while other times you'll need a toothpick. But the writer didn't put that fossil in the ground. Stories are found objects, according to King. Most stories and characters just come to him, relatively complete, and it's a matter of fleshing them out. Here's another of his bombshells for aspiring writers. Plot isn't compatible with creative invention. In fact, plot-making is actually counterproductive. King's novels don't feature heavy plotting. Rather, he considers himself a situational writer. Create a fascinating situation with a couple of interesting characters, and the story almost writes itself. What if a woman, in a sex game gone wrong, finds herself chained to a bedpost where no one will find her? What if a writer spends a season at a haunted house where memories of his dead wife torment him? What happens when a mysterious drifter opens a shop that promises any shopper the thing they desire in exchange for their souls? And what if a famous writer breaks down on the road and is rescued by his number one fan? These are perfect springboards for story. Who needs plot when you move characters organically from dramatic situation to situation? Plot is a blunt, dunderheaded device to use. A writer shouldn't use a jackhammer when it's time to use a scalpel. King has mapped out the plots for some of his novels, but they tend to be his least favorites, like Insomnia and Rose Matter. The Dead Zone was plotted, and that's both a fan and King favorite. But on the whole, if you want to be a successful writer, don't spend too much time on plot. It's the situation and the characters that turn a book into something special. Books, King says, are a uniquely portable magic, but they only get magical when you're ruthless with your editing. When he was a teenager, he'd send off stories to magazines with the hope of getting published. One editor returned a story with a note, second draft equals first draft minus 10%. That formula proved to be a foundation of his career. By making his second drafts always at least 10% shorter than his first, 
It omitted all the lines and paragraphs that didn't increase the power of the work. If you're not able to do this, you're not trying hard enough. Some people want novels with literary merit, King admits, but most of the time, they just want a story that fascinates and grips them. The author's priority is to keep their attention, which means a deep understanding of pace and flow. And once they're done reading, you want the story or the idea to stay with them, to resonate. If you can do this, you'll have a writing career. We'll take one final break before concluding our look into On Writing, a memoir on the craft. We'll take a look at the day King almost died and the days following. Then we'll end by examining King's legacy. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodapp.com slash insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights. I do this because I like it. I have fun. I, I like to write, and I want the people who read uh, what I write to like it. And it's not any kind of a bigger deal than that. That's Stephen King at a Q&A at a Washington, D.C. high school. We're concluding our book insight on On Writing, a memoir on the craft. It's the second nonfiction book by best-selling sensation Stephen King. We'll look into the consequences of the near-fatal accident that almost killed King in the summer of 1999. Then we'll end with a reflection on the author's life since publishing on writing and his legacy. There's an ongoing tradition of authors enjoying the sensation of motion. Joyce Carol Oates wrote about it in her memoir, The Faith of a Writer. You'll find men and women as obsessed with running as they are with writing. Haruki Murakami comes up with some of his best stuff while running. Don Winslow runs for hours in between his marathon writing sessions. Stephen King is a walker. He walked four miles a day leading up to June 19, 1999. That's the day Brian Smith struck King with his van. When the ambulance arrived and medical first responder Paul Brown saw King laying in the ditch, he thought he might not make it to the hospital. Parts of his right leg were broken and other parts pulverized. His knee was so damaged he would limp for the rest of his life. His spine was chipped, ribs broken. He had a gash in his scalp from when his head bounced off the windshield. That alone needed 20 to 30 stitches. In a moment of passing consciousness, King remembered scooping blood out of his eyes. His lap looked like it was wrenched to the right. As King was helicoptered to Central Maine Medical Center in Lewiston, an unfinished book sat back home on his desk. This book. He'd written half of it in 1997 before filing it away in a drawer. But within 48 hours of his date with Brian Smith, his blue van, and Bullet the Rottweiler, he decided he had to finish it. This was, to borrow a word from a novel he'd published 19 years later, a confluence. A confluence is a coming together of different streams at a gathering point. He uses it to describe how things coincidentally line up in a strange, perfect fashion. Here's another confluence. King was hit by Smith's van on June 19, 1999. 19 is a number fans of his Dark Tower series should find interesting. For the series' protagonist, the mythical gunslinger Roland, 19 is a number of power and frequently pops up throughout the Dark Fantasy series' eight volumes. Many moments of King's life corresponds with 19 as well, such as the age when he began writing the first Dark Tower story. 
and now that number shows up twice on the day he almost died. King has maintained a rigorous writing schedule for decades, 2,000 words every day year-round. But for five weeks following the injury, King didn't write. With his smashed hip, he couldn't sit for longer than 40 minutes without passing out from the pain. He couldn't focus on rules of style and grammar when he felt like the walking dead. His wife Tabitha gave him a gentle push to get back at it. She set up a makeshift writing space in the back hall of their house in Bangor, Maine. His output slowed to a crawl. In the book's final paragraphs, he muses that he's getting better every day. He's starting to write the way he used to. And on his good days, he retreats into that state of pure flow that all creators hit. King realizes that in his darkest hour, the same two loves of his life rescued him again. If it weren't for Tabitha and writing, he would have died in the 80s or 90s due to his substance abuse. In 1999 and in 2000, the same two returned to rescue him. What was his lowest moment? You might say it's when King lay smashed to a pulp, dropping in and out of consciousness on the side of the road. You might even say it's during the helicopter ride between hospitals when his lung collapsed and the enormity of what's happening hits him. Or you might identify his long recovery, forcing himself to write at his makeshift desk, head swimming with painkillers and feverish agony. King never lost hope, though. He wanted to live for Tabitha and because he needed to keep writing. King is a writer, and he wasn't finished writing. Before we end our book insight on Stephen King's on writing, let's go over everything we learned. We learned about the women in King's life who shaped the writer he became. First, there was Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King, the single-parent mother who raised him. She showed Stevie that he could invent his own stories and even earn money for them. His wife, poet and novelist Tabitha King, saved the scrapped early pages of Carrie from the trash bin. Carrie became Stephen's first published novel, and the paperback rights set up the family financially. His substance abuse spiraled out of control, peaking during the 80s. King believes that male writers have an inherent urge to close themselves off to drink, a habit he succumbed to. Again, his wife Tabitha saved him by pushing him to quit. He survived for his family and his writing's sake. King believes that books are a uniquely portable magic, and that writing is a form of telepathy from one person to the next. But he also explains how every writer needs a toolbox of basic skills and knowledge to be able to achieve their writing goals and be successful. Finally, we went over King's horrific injuries after getting struck by a van in 1999. He was nearly killed, but was saved due to the expertise of first responders and modern medicine. He pulled through and persevered through the long recovery. He still had a head full of ideas and a family to live for. The man who hit King, Brian Smith, died in 2000, after On Writing's publication. The cause of death was not clear, but it was likely suicide. Some criticized King's efforts to push charging Smith with aggravated assault, which would grant Smith jail time. In the end, he received a suspended sentence and had his license taken away. On hearing of Smith's passing, King's only comment was, the death of a 43-year-old man can only be termed untimely. His lawyer purchased Smith's van to keep it from bouncing around private cellars. King eventually recovered enough to walk on his own, but progress was slow, and writing caused him agony. His 2001 novel Dreamcatcher was written under a fog of Oxycontin, and he since expressed his disappointment in the quality of that novel. 
In 2002, King grew so frustrated that he announced his retirement from writing. Fortunately, the muse that saved his life from drugs and drink returned. He quickly finished his long-running Dark Tower series that he started in 1977. He also became more active in social media and politics, writing an essay called Guns that criticizes lax U.S. gun laws. He's a fierce critic of Maine politicians and the 45th U.S. president. That slow, painful crawl back to health and his old writing regiment has picked up speed. King is publishing at least one new book a year, and 2018's The Outsider was a bestseller. Now entering his 70s, King seems almost as much in demand for his knowledge of the writing craft as he is for his stories. Here's King one last time at that Q&A in Washington, D.C. My idea is if people see a book with my name on it, they should say, oh God, a free vacation, because that's what my mother felt like uh, when she read the Agatha Christie books that she read when I was a kid. If you're a budding writer, here's a reminder of his chief advice in full. If you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others. Read a lot and write a lot. There's no way around these two things that I'm aware of. No shortcut. Thank you for listening to Book Insights. Check out the rest of our content at memodap.com. Please keep in mind that the information provided in or through our Book Insights episodes is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not intended to be a substitute for advice given by qualified professionals and should not be relied upon to disregard or delay seeking professional advice. Thank you.